0: Oh, 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 we're back with a really interesting episode. We have uh, Noi with us. She's somebody who spent 10 months in Yerwada jail in Pune. And she wanted to come on the podcast and talk about her experience with us. So, so hi, Noi.
1: Hi. Hi, Alina. Hi, Alitis. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Thanks for being here.
0: I'm very excited about this episode. So, to begin with, I guess I wanted to ask you... What happened? How did you end up in jail?
1: I wish I knew myself. It happened so fast. To cut a long story short, I was at the wrong place at the wrong time. I was basically implicated in a narcotics case. And um, because of, I don't know, many reasons, I suppose, I was kind of stuck in jail for 10 months because all of this happened during the lockdown when courts were shut and uh, narcotics cases are um, depending but mostly they are uh, considered their non-bailable cases so because covid had just hit and um, the courts were shut and uh, you know there were like a lot of delays in process so i was stuck in jail for 10 months it was very messy and confusing actually Mm. so Mm. Now, there is a certain procedure that people are supposed to follow, but mostly they don't follow Mm. these procedures, especially for narcs cases, I guess. And um, I was uh, kept in custody maybe for like less than 24 hours. And... um, Mm. Then they were like, okay, no, you can go, we'll put you in jail. It's like very complicated actually, but basically I was in custody for less than 24 hours and then they sent me to jail after that without questioning me properly. Um, They wrote, they made up a fake FIR, which I only got to know like 10 months later what they actually wrote. I wasn't even, I was was questioned a lot. Like it was a narcotics case. So... Mm -hmm the issue at hand was like um, this bag of meow meow that was there
0: Mm.
1: and uh, you know they were asking like whose meow meow is it and I didn't really know you know so right I mean I couldn't really help them with that Mm. but uh, I guess I was implicated in that case that, oh, you know, she Mm. probably knows where it's from. So let's just, you know, um, deal with her this person. So they were trying to question me over that, like, where is this from and whose is it? Because Mm. these guys, the narcotics people, they knew it wasn't mine, but they were like, whose is it? it?" And um, I think on some level, um, they were hoping for like an amount of money from my side and from, well, from my family mm. or whatever. And uh, unfortunately mm. for them, I don't have the kind of money that they were hoping for. So, um, yeah, you know, all this stuff just came together and they were like, okay, fine, chalo, you go to jail. And when I was, uh, you know, I was in custody for like 24 hours um, over that bag of uh, meow meow, mm. and um, mm. they'd gone to my, place and they found a sheet of papers okay a stamp papers Mm -hmm. and they were like okay fine what is this this is lsd and i'm like no it's really not like you can test it and check it out for yourself and they took up this Mm -hmm. testing kit and in front of my face they were testing it and it came out negative and they're like, see, uh, you know, this has come positive. I'm like, no, it's not. I mean, you know, I, I was showing them on the box that it's come negative. Like, how can they say this? And they're like, no, no, it's come positive. This is LSD. And I'm like, it's it's not, but mm. okay. I mean, you know, um, I don't know what to tell you. And they're like, we'll send it to the lab and find out. And I'm like, yeah, do that. But mm. I didn't know at that point of time that would take six months to do, okay. I thought they, right. they meant they would do it at that point um but they really didn't so they had that mm. sheet of empty like literally paper a bag of meow and they were like okay fine um you know if you don't tell us or if you can't tell us who this belongs to or where it's from then you go inside to jail so i was like oh now what can i say really you know at that point um no one was there also for me to Um, you know fight for me and stuff at that point so they put me inside and I thought I'd come out in a couple of days once everything was like sorted out you know that didn't happen they kept harassing my family also they were like no you have to pay this amount or you have to do this you have to do that then they hired a lawyer who is they tried to hire a lawyer who was basically on their side so at that point there was this um a sort of association between a particular lawyer, the narcotics Mm. people and the court people, they had this sort Mm. of deal that, you know, if you get a person like this, you ask them for this amount of money and then you know, this person gets a cut and that person gets a cut. So it's pretty much like a money making situation for them. So they were trying to get that lawyer on board and uh, you know, they were like not ready to let me go and my family was really, really, worried they didn't know what to do or how to deal with this because uh, narcotics cases of a certain amount they are non-bailable which means you can only file for bail after your charge sheet comes up and only for narcotics cases they take like six months they take six months to file a charge sheet and they can extend that for murder cases if you don't like have a charge sheet in three months the limit But murder is three months and after three months, if you don't have a charge sheet, they will let you go automatically. But in drugs cases, they're like, because of the nature of, you know, cartels, you can extend that to six months and you can extend six months to one year if you have grounds for doing that. Like it's easier to be a murderer in this country
0: than it is to be a junkie. (laughs) You know what I mean? So what were your first thoughts when you arrived at the jail?
1: I didn't think I was in jail, first of all, I really thought it was some kind of holding area because I thought jail would be a space where, I mean, I thought it'd be like single cells, like how they show in movies, you know, with bars and things like this. But I was in um, a large-ish room with like 60 other women and everyone was just kind of sitting there. Not everyone was in uniform. So I didn't realize I was in jail until one week later when I finally asked someone, like, is this jail? And they're like, yeah, this is jail. So, I mean, once you were apprehended by the police and taken to jail or taken to wherever you were held while in did you get to meet your family before you went to jail? No, it was very sudden. It was all very sudden. So I, I got to meet them. Um... One or two days after this happened, after I went to jail and I met them maybe one or two days after that. They first picked me up, they interrogated me, they were doing all of that. Then right before sending me to jail, they called my mom. They're like, oh, you know, we're sending your daughter to jail. But that could also be because I kind of told them, like, you know, don't call her. You know, I was telling them, like, don't call her. Like, you know, can we just sort this out ourselves? which was probably the wrong thing to do on my part. But um, I personally was trying to keep my family out of this. And maybe if my mom had come and stuff, it would have helped at that point. But um, I don't know, my mind wasn't there. I was like, no, no, don't call her here, don't call her here. But if she had come, then, you know, these guys feel more inclined to be like, okay, fine. She's not, you know, she's probably not, you know, in some kind of cartel or she's probably not working for some mafia guy or hatching some kind of, you know, dangerous plot. But I didn't think that way. I was just like, I was just like, you know, I'll get out of here, like now, like in you know, a couple of hours, I'll just go, you know, what kind of case is this? I'll go after this, uh, what kind of situation is this? So uh, I told them, don't call my mom. So I met my family like one or two days after all of this happened. Yeah, but a jail is supposed to be one of the better jails in the country. It's comparatively spacious and the food is uh, not so bad compared to other jails, like Cola pool and stuff like that. There are like six barracks, like these large rooms and each has a holding capacity of 60 people or less than that actually. But when I went, um, when I went there, They had put around 80 women in each barrack because they were having an overcrowding situation. To counter this, they were building a new barrack, though. But I think that stopped midway because of COVID. All the other barracks were like stuffed with women, just stuffed with people, like people were sleeping on top of each other. It was that bad then there's one specific barrack just for sick people like people who have contagious diseases or um can't be with the general populace yeah so they have a separate barrack there's a kitchen area there's a field also and a bathing area so technically it's divided into the place where the convicts stay and the place where the under trials stay they're not normally kept together yeah but during covid times they had to segregate people based on stuff like age like they had to keep all the old women and the women with children in one area and they kept you know the younger uh, uh, people who have stronger immune systems in one area so that way uh, Convicts
0: and under trials got to mingle a lot. What about like things like cash, clothes?
1: Clothes-wise, you're only allowed three sets of clothes. In terms of money, uh, your family can send you money. And I think there's an upper limit of 4000 a month that they can send. There's a, a space there where you can work and earn money, like making bath mats, some, some activities like that i also went over there for a few months i went i made some bathroom mats and things like that uh, and you know you get paid for that it's a pretty interesting initiative i forgot which company it was but it's some company csr initiative but otherwise you know people can send like your family can send you money from home but there are a lot of people who don't have anyone actually so they're the ones who go to factory. so this factory thing is really awesome i should say and i think Yerwada is the only place that has Factory, can you describe like a
0: general day
1: for me? Okay, so it's like it's really mundane, um, but the smallest tasks are so hectic, it's really, really uh, an eye opening experience over there. Even getting like one bucket of water is a fight. So we'd wake up at 6 a.m., um, they'd send in breakfast and tea then we have to go and run and get buckets of water or you know yeah something like that get buckets of water go to your bathroom business and all and that would take like a good two hours to finish because there'd be like um maybe eight stalls to share between like 150 women or something and you know you have to be like really on your toes if you want to like get in there and um you know like get a stall for yourself and you know get your buckets and you know just finish your thing and there's no concept of privacy at all so that's really something one has to get used to um when you're in a space like that so you know you, you finish doing all of that and really by the time <laughs> you're done with all of this um it's lunch time So then you go, you line up, you get lunch, and then maybe you just hang around for a bit. after that, you have to go and fill your water bottles with drinking water, fill your buckets, Mm -hmm. uh, wash your clothes, wash your dishes, um, then go and sit inside. From 5 p.m. you have to sit inside. 5 p.m. until next day, 6 a.m. And beach may have to go wash your clothes uh, and uh, do jharu. Everyone has a designated jharu space. So the routine is really this. There's not much else you can do. But whatever I just said, it takes you a long time to do it because everything is communal. And people are super aggressive in there. It's It's really intense. People are damn aggressive in there like I'm like remembering these things and I'm finding it vaguely amusing, okay? Because it's just so, like so unreal in a way. Um, But when I was there, really, really bad. It was very difficult for me, especially initially. It was very tough for me. I, I've been out for more than a year and now I've become like a little more normal. Um, When I had just come out, I was like, shell-shocked because the transition was just so strange for me, you know. But uh, at that point, when all this was happening, it was so, so, so... Um, I mean, I wouldn't call it traumatic exactly, but it was... Uh, I don't know, man, what to say. It was something else only because like, the tasks, the daily routine was mundane. But the level of aggression there was... Uh, very, very depressing.
0: So did you feel like feel judged or threatened when you were inside by the other people there?
1: Initially, for sure. Inside, there is a very, like, it's not that in your face. But there is a class structure that shouldn't exist, but it does. And um, I was in there alone. So usually you are supposed to find a group and you know just be with that group of people. I I didn't really fit in with the most with most people, but at the same time I did because like in general I am like a little friendly. I mean it it was like a, it was a learning curve for me to figure out how to behave. The first night itself, when I was put in there, um I was put in the middle line to sleep in and that's in between two other lines and the person ahead of me me was nudging me to go down and the person Nietzsche was nudging me to go up and I got pissed so Mm. I just snapped at them I said don't uh, tell me where to go you know I'm trying to sleep because I was angry also you know I was scared all all those feelings and the person underneath me i still remember her name Nilofa, okay so she was like oh this one thinks she's a <laughs> bottle i feel like scratching her eyes out okay she said this and i was so scared oh god she's gonna scratch my eyes out what do i do i realized that uh okay fine something new here I have to be like a little chill so no, basically, initially, people judge me a little bit because most of the people in jail, they are the people who are a little from underprivileged backgrounds. But because of that class system I was talking about, um, a lot of these people, they think that if you speak English, you automatically think better than them. You know what I'm saying? They'll be like, oh, you know, she thinks she's better than us. And... Um, a lot of people do behave that way. And this is so weird, but like the people in um, financial crimes, okay, they, they kind of did act like they were better than others. Okay. They used to act like they were better than the prostitutes or better than the murderers or, you know, morally better than everybody else in there because they're just in a financial crime. And um, the people, in financial crimes were like 10 like they they tended to be a little more educated than the others like it, it just happened you know and a lot of them are actually from wealthy families educated or not huh? some of them pretended to be educated they were just wealthy so they used to act like it also basically they would they would give uh, saman to others to do their work for them so automatically that class system was created right you have people employing others to do their work for them people who were employing others were english speaking and i came in there and i was like english speaking but i was in a narcotics case and i had this weird habit of rubbing my nose the, so the english speaking or rather you know educated people were like oh you know maybe she's dangerous because she's in a narcotics and she's talking to everybody so there's something wrong with her and you know the other people would be like oh no she thinks she's you know she's full of herself because she can't speak hindi properly and she's talking in english and i was just like you know i didn't really have anything to do i was just like yeah okay fine whatever but i just kept my head down and i just spoke to everyone normally and eventually i made friends and i was on good terms with most people there actually I didn't get into fights or anything like that so can you tell me a little bit about the friends you made see friends is a very strong word okay (laughs) when you're in there (laughs) because you're only friends when you're in there you know what i mean if i met most of the people out here i would like turn around and like run the opposite direction i have like a like two or three friends from inside who are who were like there for me and
0: stuff um i guess i want to know like how did friendships work inside or a little bit about just your experience with people there like how did you told me how people perceived you but okay why don't you start by telling me what kind of people people were in there like what were they in there for
1: okay so you had minor crimes like petty theft and um, you know maramari getting up and You know, like small crimes. Like there was this one woman who was there for two weeks because she had beat her husband and her husband only called the cops on her. And, you know, there were situations like that. But then the people who um, were there for more than three months, they're the ones who decided to go ahead and build friendships because they're like, yeah, fine, we're here for some time. So the non-bailable cases, non-bailable offenses with those people and non-bailable offenses are stuff like um, like NDPS, it's narcotics and then there's MPID which is um, uh, Maharashtra Protection of Investors Deposits and that's a financial crime, like you know when companies tank and they can't pay their investors back uh, that comes into MPID and um, then there's food yeah. charges Yes, that's also a smaller scale financial crime. Then there's PETA, mm-hmm. and PETA is a, a it's for prostitution, basically. Um, but mostly it's the mm-hmm. pimps that busted, and um, mostly pimps, and also those who deal in underage girls and uh, uh, Bangladeshi girls, or you know girls without passports and stuff, like who are in the country illegal mm-hmm. They also get um, booked under mm-hmm. PETA. Then you have POSCO, which is uh, prevention of child sexual abuse. And um, Hmm. then, of course, you have murder. So most of the convicted people uh, were mm, convicted for murder. Most of them. Then there's one person um, associated with Bombay Blast. There was one Naxal. Yeah, that's basically what the layout was like. Ah, um, when I was in there... Uh, the Sh- uh, Shoma Sen and Sudha Bhardwaj, they were also there. Did you speak to her? Yeah, I did speak to her and Shoma Sen a couple of times. Um, the you know how I how we met. So I was a loner for the first few months, I guess, and uh, because over there, mm. everyone is observing you also, right, to see how you are and things, you know, what kind of person you are. I think one day, I, I used to read a lot. So one day I was just sitting there and I was reading. It's ironic, but I was reading The Godfather, okay? And um, mm. I was just sitting there and reading that. And then Shoma, ma'am, and Sudha, ma'am, they came in. They were like, oh, you're reading The Godfather in jail? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I know. And they just went. But I, I, after that, I went, I tried to approach them a couple of times. And they were really warm and i was so surprised like how can they be here you know especially i think one of them had a knee problem she couldn't even sit any like sit properly stand properly but the thing with them is they were like really high security like people were not allowed to talk to them they were considered very dangerous people I couldn't freely go and talk to them. If I had to say something, I'd have to creep around and, you know, like somehow sneak past their (coughs) cell and, you know, like speak to them, ask, how are you and stuff like this. So I didn't get to talk to them at length, but just a bit here and
0: there. So what was it like to like talk to people who, you know, have murdered others or have been trafficking children? Like, how was that experience for you? You know, it, it
1: wasn't that weird for me, actually because um you don't know what people have done when you're in there yeah you, there's no way you would know unless someone told you and i was just i was too scared to ask people outright what you did you know in the beginning because i thought what if they got angry that i'm asking mm-hmm. i didn't even ask just over time you know i find out okay you know that person's done this or that person's done that so i made two friends over there and um, they would help me understand what was going on because I don't know Marathi at all. You know, one of them used to do a lot of paperwork and stuff. So she used to know about everybody's case. And my other friend, the two of them would tell me, like, this person has done this and that person has done that. And uh, what gets around, man? You, you end up finding out who has done what. They mostly lie only. Nine times out of ten, they lie. But the problem with that. If you're there for like a long time, uh, some of the convicts work in the administrative office. So then, uh, you know, they know what you've done because it's written there, right? A few, very few, a few of them can read also. Otherwise, our matrons tell them. So if you come and you lie about it and someone finds out you've lied about it, it can be like, you know, a real thing, man. Because especially the convicts, because they're there for like 10 years, 14 years, 20 years. For them, it's really important whether you're a liar or whether you know you're khulla about your case and remorseful about what you've done and you know it's important for them to know these things
0: so if you do lie then you're kind of ostracized and shit like that what, were people actually remorseful or there were people who also just probably would go back to it if they could it's really difficult to say so i think man
1: you're remorseful when you're caught and you're getting punished for something but when you're you know, when you grow up when you grow up in a community which is doing a certain thing and you are taught from a young age that you're doing this because you have no other option, then it's just really, really difficult for you to stop doing that activity, you know? So things like mm. you know, people who are actually like proper drug peddlers or actual, like, mm. prostitutes and, um, you know, decoits and stuff like this, people mm. who are organized crimes, it's really difficult for them to pull out of it. I mean, there's a saying that if you're a prostitute or a drug dealer, you'll do it again and you'll come back again also. You'll keep coming back. Jail will become your second home. So their acceptance is mostly within their own communities and stuff. The, the government has taken a lot of steps to teach these women vocational skills. So they do have like, hmm. you can do like distance learning and learn English and learn Marathi and learn how to read and write. Um, and there are vocational training, like beauty parlor training and stuff. But there has to be like um some kind of module or course to discuss with these guys That why it's better for them in the long run to not do this kind of stuff anymore.
0: People know that this is like an intrinsic thing of knowing that like trafficking children is wrong. You know, so that's, I guess, every other crime, I'm still like, I can somehow understand it. But for me, it's like trafficking children. I'm just like, you know it, you know, you don't need education to understand that.
1: There was one. it's, It's not that simple. It may seem black and white to someone who is so disconnected from that life. But for someone who's knee deep or rather chin deep in it, who, you know, like for them, it's not that simple because it's very normal. Um, I'll give you two examples. There was one person. Um, she had like a huge chip on her shoulder. She didn't like me at all. And I, you know, I don't know why. But anyway, with her, she, so one day we got, we had a conversation. She was like something, something. She was a pimp. And um, you know, usually I used to be just I used to just say, ha ha, yeah, yeah, ha and, you know, I used to just listen without like giving my opinions to people. But that day, I don't know. I was just yeah. like, you know, don't you, why don't you just get out of this? Because she used to keep justifying it. That, you know, um, I know you're judging me, but you don't know what my life is like. You know, she used to keep saying this. And one day I got annoyed. Mm-hmm. Because I'm not even saying anything, you know. I was not even questioning. her, But I got annoyed. I'm like, uh, why shouldn't I judge you, you know? Um, mm. oh, why, why shouldn't I judge you? Then she's like, you know, right. when I was a child, I was trafficked. So, you know, I it happened to me when I was, a like, a really young girl. And now I'm doing the same thing. And um, I try to make sure my girls are fine. But... Um, you know, this is just something that we do in my community. Like that, she's saying. Then they like, okay, fine. Then I asked her, w- you have a child? And she's like, yes, I have a child. And I'm like, would you like your child to do the right. same? Gender? She was so pissed at me. She's like, how can you say this? And I'm like, what do you mean? How can I say this? You're, just, you're sitting here and you're saying how great your job is. But then you don't want your own kid to do mm. the same thing. And she got very angry and she wouldn't talk, Mm. you know, sometime after that. So there's, like, a lot of cognitive dissonance also. Um, Because, like, it's difficult Mm. for these guys to talk about stuff like this. Like, who will they talk to, really, about this, you know? Because they're just always having to justify what they're doing. Another girl, I only found out she was a pimp much later. Like, at the end of 10 months only, I found out she used to do that. She used to say something else only. Um, But at the end of 10 months, she's like, do you know what I do? I'm like, what? I you know, I sell kids. I'm like, oh, God, you know, why are you telling me this? And then she's like, you know, uh, don't be so surprised. A lot of these girls, they come to me and they ask for this. So there are a lot of these young kids who themselves have maybe run away from home. Maybe their parents are like really fucked up or something. Or there's some situation they're running away from. They go to people and they're like, you know, we want to do this. So then these people are like, yeah, fine, you want to do it, I'll make a buck off of you. So it's just like there's a lot of desensitization, there's like a lot of root problems that need to be dealt with, you know. It's not as easy as <laughs> really just telling someone that you know this is wrong to do. Did you form any closest relationships in jail? Like Did you have any friends that maybe you kept in touch with or could you tell us a little bit more about that? Okay, so initially when I went there, the first person I made friends with, she's a girl who could speak Bengali. And I happened to mention in general um, that I'm Bengali. So then she came, she was like, okay, fine. You know, I'm from Jharkhand. I can speak. My husband is Bengali. I can speak Bengali. So for time, she, you know, we, she wanted to hang with me and shit. So then after some time, i realized her thing is that she's just broke and she needs someone to like you know help her with saman and things like this so i used to hang out with her for a little while but then she was like a you know big fighter person she used to go and fight with people and she was getting me into trouble also and she's like not inherently a bad person because she was in a 420 case and um you know, her husband, you know, it was like a counterfeiting money case, but her husband and her were basically the last in line. And they were just people who do the dirty work, you know, um, they were sitting in jail, whereas the main person was happily chilling outside. He must have paid the cops or something like keep them inside for some time. Don't touch me. That guy never came inside, apparently. So anyway, so this Jharkhand girl and I made a bond for a little while, but then we had to break that bond because she was getting too much. I became friends with one person. Um, she's in an MPID case. And um, she and I are still very close, actually. So she's my one friend. And I have one more acquaintance who's also in an MPID case. She's a decent friend of mine so after jail spa jail time i kept like two acquaintances who i can't like really name because i don't think they'd appreciate that but uh yeah i, I maintained the contact with two people
0: and were you allowed to like stay in touch with people outside while you were in jail like your family or friends or anyone were they allowed to see you and things
1: so i was in there during lockdown so norm so normal jail situation is very different lockdown was very different very bad it was so i was really there at the worst point but i got to interact with the mass amount of people which i wouldn't have gotten to do otherwise i guess because of lockdown we weren't able to interact with too many people because like no one was allowed right to congregate and stuff so there were no people allowed to come so i think initially in the first two three months my mom and sister were so like so so supportive of me at that point throughout actually they were really my rock man i was like feeling very bad during this entire thing but they would come every week you're allowed two visits a week i don't i think they used to come twice a week both the visits they used to come and you know i'd get to talk to them for like 10 minutes through a glass window through a phone And there'd be like four or five other people next to me um, making calls as well. Like, you know, everyone's just fighting for time. And it's, uh, you know, people were like, in just 10 minutes, they they would be like, you know, what's the status of my case? And how are you? How are the kids? And you know, so much you want to say, so much you want to say, but you have to cram that in 10 minutes. Um, And aside from that, we would write letters. But this was, this went on for two months. After two months, two or three months when lockdown came about, all of this stopped. And I don't remember for how long, but I think for at least a good four months, uh, we were like not in contact with people at all. And that was crazy. Like women were losing their shit. They were losing their minds because they didn't know anything what was the status of you know their case or you know what's happening with their families or if their money order had not come in why didn't it come in and there's nothing to do inside so all you can do is just sit and obsess and obsess you know what's happening outside what's happening outside what's happening outside what's happening outside so those four months were so bad it was really insane Then, after some time, even the authorities realized like this is kind of inhuman. So, they brought out a phone. So, once a week, we got a phone call for like two minutes. And that turned into like twice a month. And I think at one point it became once a month because they found that women were like calling others who are on the run or wanted by authorities or, you know, people who should, in, who they should not be calling basically. So then, you know, and people were fighting over the phone, like a lot was happening. So it's not even the authorities' fault in in total, but uh, they reduced that to once a month at one point. It was really, really tough. And, uh, you know, to discourage people from calling, they were like, only people who have money can make phone calls. So then, whoever didn't have money was—they were not able to make phone calls. So you can imagine how that was.
0: And what about things like uh, medical help, hygiene, menstrual hygiene, and medicines? And just especially during COVID, people getting COVID—were there doctors? Like, what was that system like?
1: <sighs> they ma- uh, they managed that pretty well, I should say. Um, every they would have a doctor specifically for kids. Um, they had a doctor specifically for skin because there, was a, there were a lot of skin infections in there man. and uh, they had a doctor specifically for for some stuff. they had a general doctor also. There was even a psychologist actually who came in. and I think at one or like twice, there was a dental clinic that came to check teeth. And there was an NGO who came and gave prescription uh, spectacles and stuff. So if you felt sick, um, you'd have to go and stand in a line. And you go there, and there'll be a matron, and you tell her what's wrong with you. And she'd decide what to give you. Nine times out of ten, they'd either give you an anti-allergy medicine, or they'd give you um, mm. They'd pretty much give you that only uh citrusin. they'd give Citrusin and like a couple of other things here and there but it was not like like the best thing man because you'd have to wait like i had like this weird i had a lot of health issues when i went there initially because my immune system was not used to some of these things you know so i got chicken pox and then i got uh this really bad skin uh, fungal infection it was crazy that is a scourge of your yeah, what a deal that like, fucking fungal infection, man. They are so, you know, every time I felt sick or something, I'd have to wait, like they would go, they would tell, they'd call the doctor and do all of that. But it would take time. Like the guy would come the next day or something like that. You know, nothing is immediate over there. If if you have like a serious issue, they they will like try to deal with it. And I don't know if this delay was just because of the lockdown environment, but I've heard that normally without lockdown, Um, They're more efficient. So how did you deal with this emotionally? I mean, just being in this environment and not really having any warmth to turn to? I would just cry. I would put blanket on my head and I would cry. Okay, so there'd be this thing when you know people would just be sitting there and uh, they'd suddenly like just start tearing up and crying and everyone would look at them and be like, oh, what's this? You know, memory has come to her. And you know, like some people would just let her cry, some people would comfort her, some people would say, I hey, don't cry, why are you crying? Why are you crying? Don't cry, you know. Most people were indifferent, but that's really all you can do. You can like distract yourself by reading or drawing or doing menial labor you can just sit there and cry man like for me that's what i did but i i'm not like a public cryer, really and i what i used to do like my one friend there she knew when i was crying because that's when i just take out my bed and i was just like cover my head and pretend to sleep and she'd nudge me and be like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm not doing anything. but I'd actually just be like crying and like feeling really, really sad and stuff. That's how I, I dealt with it really. And I wrote a lot. I wrote so much. I used to write so many letters to my mom and my sis and mostly my mom. Um, for the longest time, we weren't very close, I guess. But when this happened, it really um, made me realize who my friends are and who actually cares, who cares for me, actually, you know. And um, the value of family really stuck out because at the end of the day, when you're in a situation like when you're stuck in jail, mostly it's your family who's going to be there for you because they kind of have to also. But they don't have to. So a lot of people, their family abandoned them, you know. But my family was there for me. So I used to write letters upon letters to my mom, and um, you know, when I couldn't do that anymore, I used to write letters for the other inmates. They would tell me what they wanted to say. And I'd just write letters for them. I'd make cards for them. I started teaching English for some time. Um, I used to do yoga. Then I started going to the factory. Basically, it's a waiting game. So I used to try to distract myself and just keep myself as busy as possible. I used to do all my own work in 10 months. I think only four months, I actually asked someone to help me out with it. And then I realized that if I was just sitting there and doing nothing, those were like, the most harrowing moments because you don't know what's going on. You don't have a phone. You don't have any connection to anyone in the outside world. You really start feeling that you'll be in jail for the rest of your life. You know, like this is it. Were there any stories that you heard in jail that really freaked you out? Yeah, there were a lot of stories, I guess. There's this one sister duo. I heard that she, they, they had like anger issues and one of them strangled a cat once man to be really honest because um i mean it, i i was not really freaked out by anyone in there or, or by anything because everything was just really like sad you know everyone was filled with despair and shit I, I guess here's one surprising incident for me uh there was a person i was teaching her english for some time and she had told me that um you know she was in a murder case but uh, she was staying as a tenant in someone's house and that person the landlord is a person who st- strangled someone and this girl was just coming home and found the body there and she you know, took the lady to the cops this is what she told me So i was like okay fine then bad means like much later someone was like, Oh, you know what her thing is? I'm like, What is it? And they're like, um, basically she's a prostitute and she had a a guy who would keep coming and this guy fell in love with her, apparently. But she has um a husband and kids and everything, so she uh, you know, couldn't be with this guy and this guy would get like really violent and weird about it. And one day he was, like, um, really drunk and, you know, like, things were getting, like, heated up and stuff. And they got into an interaction. And basically, I think she strangled him. And the landlord was actually her pimp. And, you know, both of them got into trouble for this. But I was just freaked out because, you know, like, she told me something else and... It turns out it's something else because she only killed that guy, right? With her bare hands. She strangled him and I was like chilling with her. So this was freaky for me when, you know, when I initially came, people would tell me something else. And then months later, I'd find out the truth. And the truth is like really hardcore, man. Like it's like very stark, you know, like everyone initially will try to make up some story like, oh, you know, actually this happened, that happened, this happened. And it sounds like, okay, fine, you know, huh? But the starkness of the reality that these people live, right? That's very surprising. Yeah, it's just like it brings you down to earth, you know what I mean? You realize man, like the how the other side live and how they find it so difficult to even say that, you know, this thing kind of happened. Like, you know, maybe, like maybe she's lying, maybe she's a bad person or whatever, but you know, what if the situation was also that this guy was harassing her? You know, like who would she really go to? She's Nepali, is that true? So, this sort of thing happened. I'm not justifying murder, of course. You know, there are different ways to take action. But from her perspective, like, you know, she couldn't even tell me, man, the truth. You know what I mean? I, I realize I'm making a they versus me dichotomy here. But I think Mm -hmm. why I'm doing this, because I'm like, you know, I'm aware like how you're saying, how Alina was saying, that there's some things that we're inherently taught or that we know. So I come into that group, I know, you know, like, this is this and that is that and I have, but I have the options also to, uh, you know, not do certain things. But I really feel a lot of these women, of course, everyone has an option, but I can understand like why it's difficult for them to pull out of these lifestyles. And I think there's like a lot of opportunity for steps to be taken to help these women pull out of these lifestyles because they really want to. Um, a lot of them who come to jail, right? it's the first time in their entire lives they're interacting with quotation upper class women educated women you know women who have choices in life this is the first time in their entire lives they're interacting with women like that and a lot of them get quite spellbound i with like one of my friends she was like a little mini hero inside the jail because she could read what was written on the circulars what that the authorities would send and you know she could stand up to the authorities and say you're lying about this or not lying maybe you're wrong about this or we have this option that we can exercise that you're not telling us about the other women women would be spellbound by her. They're like, my God, see how she can talk to them. She's so smart. She's informed. And, you know, um, these women would like really just congregate around this uh, friend of mine and, you know, talk to her and be like, you know, didi, this, didi, that. They would feel very happy if she would play with their children and stuff like this play with their children. Sorry, I was just a bit confused when you said play with their children. Were there, yeah, there, there, was, there are new children in jail because um, when the mothers are arrested, if there is nobody else to look after the kids, they bring the kids into the jail and they can stay with them until the age of five years. And after five years, um, if the mom is still in jail, the kids uh, go to a government hostel where they're educated and things like this. So did you have to deal with you know, unwanted advances? Was there any sexual violence and things like that in jail? No, not really. I mean there were people who you know like i noticed very late though because no one would even tell me these things but i found out so over there a lot of people they're more into the romance aspect they would like to have a partner for romance there were a few people who were consensually hooking up but that's totally not allowed at all by the jail authorities and um, you know that was like a big thing. If they found like I was making one friend, and they were like, oh, you know that one, they're they're trying to do PR PR because they talk like this. I'm like I'm not doing that, but you know they would try to catch the people. Oh no, that one is doing this. This one is doing this. But people would do that, but that's totally consensual. A sexual violence, like you know what? Like a few years ago, um, there was like this case of a woman called. I forget the name, but it could be Manjula Shetty or San- Sanju Shetty S.A. She was beaten to death by matrons, by cops in the jail. And the cops who had beaten her up, they were given life imprisonment. Ever since that case, they've been very careful that no kind of violence should happen in the jail. There must be cases of, you know, people, you know, trying to hit on other people. But I don't think that was like a very common thing, like in the sense, you know, the violence, sexual violence. I don't think it was very common. So can you tell us a little bit about what it was like when you got out, like the first week when you got out? What was that experience like? It was really bad. Um, I mean, I was really happy, but it was uh, very shocking for me. Yeah, basically, I was afraid with what I was gonna do. I was like, "Am I gonna be able to work? How am I gonna earn money? How, am I, you know, who's gonna talk to me? Are my friends gonna, you know, still wanna be my friends? How do I talk to my family about this?" And you know, there was just, like just general discomfort of trying to reacclimatize to the society. Um, I think for three months i didn't really talk to anybody i i didn't go out of my room I actually became really afraid of men for some reason. Like, I felt really awkward if I had to go somewhere and there was a man over there. Because for 10 months, there were, like, no men, right? Um, so that took some getting used to as well. How did that affect your dating life then? What dating life? What? How you think I'll come out of jail after 10 months and then jump into the dating pool? Or... I started going for therapy when I came out. I, I started going for therapy and then I... Um, You know, I was trying to look for work because my uh, self-esteem had become really low. Um, You know, like, you're told, right, basically, what's the worst thing that could happen to a person? Going to jail, right? That's pretty much one of the worst things that could happen to a person. So, I, like, my self-esteem was really shot down. Was finding work a challenge after this? see luckily i like i'm into content writing and social media and stuff like that so it's easy to be a freelancer and get work you know so for me initially it was tough because i didn't know what to do but i have like my friends who really helped me get freelance work and um you know, as a freelancer, people don't care if you have this sort of situation going on because they're not, I mean, you're not a liability exactly for them, right? you are just a freelancer. So from that perspective, it was fine. But it took me a few months to really um, get into the zone again. If I want full-time work with like, um, a company and stuff, you know, like a proper big company, like an MNC, especially an MNC, it, it might be really tough for me. Because, you know, like the thing is in India, they don't even do background checks, you know, but it's not really ethical to be like, to hide this sort of thing from them, from companies. But if you tell companies you have a case, their thing is that, in case you know you are dragged back in there like why would they want to invest in training you and shit like this so it can be tough but some companies i guess don't mind like the smaller ones and things but like for me on a personal level um after two or three months i was able to uh, get into the swing of things freelance work basically and do you have a lawyer now and where are things with the case right now my case is stuck in the sense and like nothing is happening. I don't have a charge sheet till now. It's been like, it'll, I'm pretty sure it's been two years now. And I don't have a charge sheet. I don't have uh, I don't have dates. I don't go to the court. Nothing is happening. Um, I do have a lawyer. He's doing my work, but he's also like, nothing, nothing is happening right now. So we can't really say anything or do anything. Just have to
0: sit here. How did jail change you? And then like, how has therapy helped? Okay, so jail, I guess, was an interesting
1: experience because, no, how it helped me? Okay, number one, it made me feel a lot more um, grateful for the smallest things. Like, even one drop of water is something, you know, like water to wash your ass it is difficult to get over there. And over here, it's like so much easier. So I'm like really grateful for all these things that I have my, I have privacy in the washroom. I can take a dump in peace or, you know, I can, I have my own water bottles to drink water from, which I can keep filling whenever I want to fill. And, you know, like I'm not even talking about internet and phone and stuff like that. I'm just saying like things like water and privacy, you know, and a bed to sleep on because for 10 months I had to sleep on the ground. So I'm like really grateful for these basic amenities. It really put things into perspective for me. I think the second thing is it's helped me become a little more focused on what I want to do with myself. I think before I used to be a little bit more, um, I don't know what the word is, but I, w- I was like, oh, I don't want to work a boring job or I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. I think I'm just much more aware of my privilege and I'm also aware of the opposite side that, you know, if you have a lot of money, you can like get out of situations like this. So I've, I guess essentially my experience has given me perspective. I feel more grounded now for sure. Yeah. I feel more grounded and grateful, grounded and grateful therapy. To be really honest, I didn't like stick around with that for very long um maybe because i didn't find the right therapist or something Uptak i've not really found a therapist who i vibe with you know so therapy didn't help me much to be really honest more than therapy um what really helped me process things was just sitting and crying and just feeling really crap you know and just processing things alone man and I do like writing out things, writing out situations Uh, that helps me think that's therapeutic for me
0: where are you right now you'd say mentally, emotionally I'm a
1: lot better now Um, Mm. my work is going okay Mm. and you know, like previously I was like, I was like into partying a lot, like going out and I was like into a lot of meaningless things, like always on the run, always looking for, you know, like just very impulsive, like chasing the next high, chasing the next high. But I got to say the quality of my life has kind of improved now. Um, so I feel, I feel pretty good about that. Yeah. And um I'm closer than ever before to my family, to my friends. So that's that's also really nice. So you know what, when I came out of that space, okay, it was like I was reborn in the sense I was literally starting from zero. Like I lost my social skills. I, I it was like, I was this weird, vulnerable baby when I came out. So I was just like, you know, going through the stages of social development and development in general from phase one and now it's been like more than a year and i'm finally like a little normal now like i can go to a social situation without freezing or feeling awkward and shit. so right now i'm fine i'm much 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 better what made you want to talk to us about it well you know um initially i thought like i was trying to also figure out like you know what were my main takeaways what what can i talk about that would be helpful in us in this situation i'm trying to r- write a book on my experiences on on one hand i feel like i w- i want to criticize the authorities and i want to humanize the prisoners basically because that was my experience but you know still be balanced in the whole thing because obviously nothing is black and white and all these situations are very complex and the second thing is i would also eventually like to share the stories of some of the people who i met in there who like you know I was saying that they're from crime communities and stuff and i think if a person gets to know their circumstances they'd be able to figure out holistic and long term ways to curb criminal activities yeah i was thinking along the same lines that you've had this very first hand intense experience and on, in a lot of ways, you were a part of that experience, but you also experienced it initially as a bit of a an outsider. So you got to observe things with a slightly different perspective. And then once it overwhelmed you, you adapted. And it's a really intriguing experience, you know, because usually you hear about them, these types of experiences from a very political space. Yeah, yeah and not really from a personalized, you know personal experience of a person who is you know wrongfully convicted or whatever and so it, it it's it's really intriguing and that's what i was thinking that you know it's an opportunity for you to tell people what it's really like and humanize the prisoners and yes, the same I mean, time. you know it's it's like it's like um Essentially, you want to reform people, not just punish them right so it helps humanizing people to understand what is the root cause of what is happening and there are many things also it's really very complex, like just two things I want to share now number one, like there's this person I know, and she's a nice girl actually like she she came she okay, so her thing is that she's um she is. Um, she had her own drug cartel, okay? And um, her father and her, her father used to do this work. And one day her father just went, disappeared somewhere. So she found some of his stash and she started selling it. And then she made a lot of money from it. So then she started getting it in mass. And, you know, she got her own gang of people. And they started this entire thing. They became a cartel now when because of the fact like see a lot of these like there are a lot of caste and class issues also which i am not privileged to talk about because i don't know shit about it also um but like a lot of these people got employed by this girl right so then they would like treat her like that also that wow you know she is like this and she's so amazing she's so good and stuff like this so she's getting so much positivity from this ad. You know she's literally helping people and shit so she'll feel like you know she should keep doing this sort of thing but at the same time when she came into this jail no she saw like uh, my friends and some other people and she would come and she would insist on sitting there and talking she'd ask Like I have have one, there was one person there. She knows fashion, like she's into fashion and things like this. So, you know, this girl, she would ask her, can you tell me good brands for lipstick? Or can you tell me good brands for clothing and things like this? Or, you know, she would ask somebody else, like, can you teach me English? How do I pronounce this word? She would go to the library and she would get books on functional language and sit and read and write and read and write and read and write. She'd keep doing that and her little gang who was also like she made another gang inside one day, who you know would loved her they worshipped the ground she walked on and they would actually tease her that oh you know the xyz Tai, you're uh, trying to become uh, you know like those people you want to you know read and talk in english and all this sort of thing they would tease her so much but still she was like you know like mind your own business and she would sit then she'd read, she'd read she'd write she'd read um because she really liked that, you know, she, she really liked that she would talk about how she has business ideas She wants to start her own uh, Organic vegetable business, you know that, that sort of thing So I mean she's not a bad person man, but of course if you see in the news You know that she has a fucking drug cartel and you know, she's like a chota dawn. They, they call it chota dawn you know? you know, she's my age man. She's 30 years old And she's a chota-ton. She sounds like a really bad person from that angle. But, you you know, like, after being with her for, like, a bit, I can, you know, I can see she's not a bad person inherently. She's not. She's a victim of circumstance.
0: Uh, One final question, which was, um, what do you see or hope for yourself in, like, the near future? What would you want from your life?
1: I have, like, a few short-term and long-term goals yeah like I, I definitely want to write a book on this experience what else do i want to do normal, normal stuff man I, I want to start like a, this particular brand that i'm going to start so right now um one thing that i'm getting into is um inner healing inner child nurturing uh doing shadow work and stuff because you know, um, for the see, I was in a narcotics case, right? And honestly speaking, for the longest time, I have been a user for mm. at least like ten years. Um, I was a user on and off, like more of a party person and stuff. And then in the last few years, I bec- it became quite excessive. Like I was doing it very frequently and. My in, immediate friend circle, like the people I was physically with, they were all into, you know, doing this shit and partying and uh, getting drunk from morning till night, and you know, that sort of lifestyle. So when I was inside and I had to sober up really fast, it was like years worth of issues suddenly, you know, I was being forced to process them. So now I'm in a space where I'm just trying to do my inner work and just figure out what is authentic to me in general. Cause I have like a lot of plans, like a lot of things I want to do. So I'm currently in that space. And right now I feel I want to make an art brand. I want to um, do a few events, maybe do like an art flea market write my book and i have like my job also so save up some cash thanks so much man for sharing so openly you're welcome